Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of the coming kingdom of heaven. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul delivers a sweeping and heady discourse about the inclusion of the Gentile disciples in the Messianic Redemption. Based on what we have learned so far in the book of Ephesians, I would argue that the epistle to the Ephesians should be considered the foundation to Pauline theology by which the rest of his epistles are interpreted. He began in chapter 1 by laying out the terms of distinction between Israel and the Jewish people, as represented by the apostles of the Jewish community of disciples and the nations strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. He then demonstrated how the Gentile disciples of the Messiah have crossed over from that hopeless and godless place to be brought near past the dividing wall of partition that once separated Israel from the nations to become fellow heirs with Israel like redeemed slaves set free by the sun and elevated to the status of sonship to share in the citizenship of the kingdom. Moreover, he indicated that this redemption of people from the nations was actually God's whole plan all along, that from the beginning God's eternal purpose was the redemption of the nations. And the redemption and calling of Israel was only a necessary precursor to this ultimate objective, the redemption of humanity. As Paul delivered this discourse, he presented deep spiritual and esoteric ideas which have close analogs in Jewish mysticism. He spoke of the indwelling of the Messiah within each of his disciples— the body of Messiah, in which each disciple is a member of the same body, forming a collective entity, and the fullness of God, which is vested into the Messiah and thereby into the body of the Messiah. These inspiring and cosmic ideas about the spiritual realities involved in Yeshua faith should utterly transcend human concerns over caste, class, status, prestige, rank, race, and gender. We are all members of one body. Each body part has a different purpose. The Messiah dwells in each individual, and God fills the Messiah all in all. After having presented this entire discourse, which concludes at the end of chapter 3, the epistle to the Ephesians makes an abrupt shift moving from the realm of the theological and the mystical to a new discussion on the practical ramifications of the first three chapters. It reminds me of something a disciple of Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Berdichev once said when asked why he had become a chassid. He said, Rabbi Levi teaches halakha as if it's mysticism, and he teaches mysticism as if it's musar. Likewise, beginning in chapter 4, Paul's epistle descends now from the lofty and ethereal to the practical and the personal. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, 
with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, 1-3 Paul refers to himself as a prisoner for the Master because he writes the epistle while in chains awaiting trial, presumably in Rome. He asks the Gentile disciples in Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This refers to the calling to follow Yeshua as a disciple, even as he said to his first disciples, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The calling language also reminds of Paul's rule for all assemblies. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. 1 Corinthians 7, 18 and 24. At this point, however, Paul urges us to conduct our lives in a manner worthy of a disciple, This verse is a good rule of thumb for life, similar to the oft-invoked maxim, what would Jesus do? In this case, the question we should ask ourselves, in every decision, large and small, and in every interaction with one another and with other human beings, is simply, what would a disciple of Yeshua do? That's the manner of your calling. And it's primarily about how we interact with one another, exhibiting a spirit of humility, gentleness, patience, putting up with the failings of others in love, and concerned about keeping the peace with one another, which he refers to as the unity of the Spirit. What does he mean by the unity of the Spirit? This refers to the unity of the spiritual bond that disciples of Yeshua share with one another as members of the spiritual body of Messiah, a unity created by the investment of God's Spirit within us. When we divide from one another, we separate ourselves from that spiritual unity. When there are factions and discord among the disciples of Yeshua, the unity of the Spirit is broken. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. In these words, Paul reminds the Gentile disciples that they are no longer polytheists going in different directions, but rather they have all joined the same club, following the same master, worshiping the same God, that is, the one God. Let's look at each one of these singular terms in turn. One body is the spiritual body of the Messiah which he described in the previous chapter as one new man. Each disciple is like a single body part. Together, we combine to make the body of the Messiah. Yeshua himself is the head of the body. One spirit is the spirit of God, which connects all the disciples of Yeshua together 
into the one body, as we have already learned. One Lord should be read not as a circumlocution for God's name, but rather as one master. This alludes to Yeshua's teaching to his disciples when he said, You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Matthew 23, 8-10 One faith refers to the disciples' confession and conviction that Yeshua is the promised Messiah who was crucified and rose on the third day and will return to bring the final redemption. For that reason, the disciple casts his allegiance with King Yeshua and submits to his authority. That's the one faith. One baptism refers to immersion in the name of Yeshua, which means in the authority of Yeshua. It was a ritual to ceremonially mark entrance into the school of Yeshua's disciples. Elsewhere, Paul explains the symbolism as that of death and resurrection. When a person becomes a disciple, he or she surrenders his or her life, dying with the Messiah, so to speak, and then rising to newness of life with the Messiah. It symbolizes a spiritual transformation that happens when a person becomes a disciple of Yeshua. One God and Father of all is the God and Father of our Master Yeshua, the Messiah. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions? the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of the Messiah. Ephesians 4, 7-12. We will come back and talk about this passage next week, God willing, because it pertains to the ascension of Yeshua, and it deserves its own treatment. I really don't have time to do it justice right now, but suffice to say, it's not what you think. He's referring to the community of the Jewish believers, particularly the apostles and the first generation of Yeshua's disciples in Jerusalem. These are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers who are equipping the saints for the work of ministry and building the body of Messiah until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of the Messiah, Ephesians 4.13. Paul says that the Jewish Yeshua community is building the body of Messiah toward the objective that 
together with the Gentile disciples, the whole body of Yeshua's disciples will attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, he's talking about his job as an apostle and what he's trying to accomplish among the Gentiles. The unity of the faith is their common confession about Yeshua and allegiance to him as king. The knowledge of the Son of God is to know the Messiah, not just knowing about him. The mature manhood refers back to the image of the body of the Messiah and the idea that we are all members of one metaphysical body. But the body of Messiah is not yet an adult. It's a child, and it has a lot of growing to do as each member of the body grows into spiritual maturity. The metaphysical body of the Messiah on earth will do so also, as it says regarding the Master in the Gospel of Luke. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Luke 2.52 As each disciple in the body of the Messiah develops and matures, the whole body develops and matures toward the measure of the stature of the fullness of the Messiah, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Ephesians 4.14 Paul warns the Ephesians against falling under the influence of teachers from outside the apostolic community. Those he elsewhere refers to as false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of the Messiah, savage wolves. He refers to work, the work of ascetics, mystics, and proto-gnostics in Colossae as those who de delude you with plausible arguments, teaching philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to the Messiah. Until we obtain spiritual maturity, we remain vulnerable to the excitement of the new and the novel. I'm sure you've known people who seem to suffer a spiritual attention deficit disorder, leaping from one thing to another thing, from one sensationalist fringe idea to another, always seeking, never finding. That's how you expect a child to behave. Young people are notorious for trying out all sorts of things and experimenting their way through life, like the college student who changes his major three times in just as many years and burns through twice that many relationships. But at a certain point, you expect a young person to grow up, mature, and settle down. It's not surprising to me to find Paul expressing frustration over the influence of other teachers on his disciples. The message of the gospel has disrupted the lives, belief systems, and worldview of the Gentile disciples. They are still rebuilding. It reminds me of what happens when people encounter Messianic Jewish teaching. It's disruptive to the established status quo, and it forces people to rethink what they thought they knew. All their assumptions are up for review. As a result, they become open to other new ideas and continue to reshuffle the deck for a while. 
They become vulnerable to theological quackery and conspiracy theories. But you can't live like that forever. The Messianic Jewish movement can't constantly be redefining itself. At some point, we need to grow up and take ownership of who we are and what we believe, no longer carried away by the next charismatic speaker or persuasive teacher or the next sensationalist idea. Instead, Paul wants his disciples to continue on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets of the Jerusalem assembly, the community of disciples that he represents, which to us is the equivalent of the authority and testimony of the New Testament. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into the Messiah, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Rather than falling into the latest sensationalism of the latest teachers, Paul points his disciples back to the apostolic authority, which to them represents the authority of Israel and the Jewish people in their role as a holy priesthood to the nations. The apostles are speaking the truth in love, and in that truth, the whole body of Messiah finds nourishment for growth. Again, each individual is compared to a body part. When the body is acting according to the truth they receive from the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers of the apostolic community, it is able to grow together into Messiah who remains at the head of this metaphysical body. When each part knows its job and understands its function, working properly, the body is healthy, and it grows to maturity in the love of God. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Ephesians 4.17 Since the Gentile disciples in Ephesus are part of this body and share in this new identity in Messiah, they have an obligation to separate themselves from their former way of life when they lived as idolaters. We aren't supposed to be like everybody else. Disciples of Yeshua are not supposed to be ordinary people who fit in with the rest of the world. If there's little to no difference between us and the rest of the people around us, we are walking as the Gentiles do, that is, in the futility of their minds. Futility of mind. The term futility of mind is related to the idea presented in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's the same Greek word used to translate that concept in Ecclesiastes, where it refers to a materialistic worldview of eat, drink, tomorrow we die, get as much out of this life as possible because there is nothing else. It's that state of mind oblivious to the spiritual dimension, to the mission of the soul, relationship with God, the existence of God, reward and punishment, and future redemption. Futility of mind is about finding happiness in this world by pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. It's the selfishness of the human ego, the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Paul describes it this way 
they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Ephesians 4, 18-19 That's how the world lives and behaves. Ignorant of the knowledge of God, and not just ignorant, but willfully ignorant, heart of heart, which means unwilling to repent. From such a perspective, it's all about the appetites, the desire of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, 1 John 2.16. Consumerism, materialism, power, wealth, sex, and prestige. These things can never satisfy the hunger of the human soul. That's how Paul characterizes the Gentile world. And he calls the disciples of Yeshua to separate themselves from that empty value system. This is an apt description of the pornographic secular world around us, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, celebrating indiscretion, brazen and unblushing, without shame, constantly pushing the envelope to call evil good and to call good evil. That's not us. That's not the manner of our calling. But that is not the way you learned the Messiah, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Yeshua, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. The Gentile disciples once lived according to the futility of mind that chases vanity like a man chasing the wind, but no longer. Having received the testimony of the apostolic community primarily through the teaching of Paul and his colleagues, the Gentile disciples have given themselves to Yeshua, the new man. They have died with him, putting off their old materialistic lives and the life of egoic materialism, like a person shedding an old pair of clothes. They have been resurrected with him to new life, a new self, like a person putting on a new pair of clothes. The new clothes are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The likeness of God is that original image of God, the heavenly Adam, in whose pattern the earthly Adam was made and given the task of bearing God's image in this world. Adam failed in that high calling when in futility of mind he pursued deceitful desires. But now in the Messiah, the heavenly Adam and the second Adam, there is a new beginning for humanity and a new chance to fulfill the mission of bearing God's image. But it's not going to work if we continue to live as the rest of the world. We need to shed the old identity, die to the self, and put on the new identity, which is the life of Messiah that he now lives in us. What does this mean in practical terms? Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Ephesians 4.25 the old man, the egoic identity, is a liar, constantly spinning the truth, stretching the truth, or just lying to protect himself 
and to aggrandize himself. He's always concerned with making himself look better in the eyes of others. But that guy is dead. Take off that identity and put on the new. The new self in Messiah is a person of integrity and honesty. We have no desire to deceive one another because we recognize that as members of one body, we share a common mutual connection. The eye does not lie to the hand. The foot does not swindle the ear. No more lies. Lies and deceit are the language of the old man who is always looking to cover his butt and make excuses for himself. It's that egoic identity who is so concerned with protecting and exalting the self. We are to regard that identity as dead in Messiah. There's no need to lie to protect that person any longer. Instead, we are members one of another in which that single egoic sense of self and self-protection should be subsumed into the larger metaphysical reality of connection in the body of Messiah. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Ephesians 4, 26-27 The old man, the egoic self, is easily offended, holds grudges, and seethes with anger against anyone who crosses him. His fragile ego is always getting wounded and hurt. Don't be that guy. Take that identity off. Put on the new. Of course we are not perfect, and people are not perfect. We will inadvertently or advertently step on one another's feelings from time to time, and there will be cause to be offended or angry. But here's Paul's rule of thumb for dealing with anger. Don't sleep on it. And don't carry it into the next day. This is like the words before the bedtime Shema in the Siddur in which a person makes a declaration of forgiveness for anyone who has wronged him or her in any way during the day or at any time, whether in this lifetime or another. It's a beautiful text and a beautiful prayer in keeping with the teaching of our Master regarding forgiveness of sins. The Torah warns us not to carry a grudge, but to love your neighbor as yourself. Here's how to do that. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you do, you give opportunity to the accuser to accuse you before the heavenly court. But if you forgive others for their trespasses, your trespasses also will be forgiven, robbing the devil of the opportunity to level an accusation against you in the heavenly court. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Ephesians 4.28 The old man, the egoic self, is a thief. In the words of the sages, he is the one who says, What's mine is mine, and what's yours is mine. He covets and wants what others have. And if he can take what belongs to others without getting caught, he'll do it. That's because his identity is not in the spirit, but in the material world. He's jealous and resentful, feeling that he deserves what others have. 
Sure, he might keep his selfishness concealed under a veneer of piety, but the reality is that he feels like he is being mistreated unless he gets what he wants. He's lazy, too, always with excuses about why he doesn't need to work or can't work, but should instead receive a handout or some credit for effort that he has not made. But in Messiah, that old thief is dead. Take off that identity and put on the new one. The new identity in Messiah does not take what does not belong to him. Instead, the new identity labors to provide for himself and for others in need. Rather than being motivated to take what does not belong to him or her, the new person in Messiah is motivated to share what belongs to him with others. In the words of the sages, he is the person who says, what's mine is yours and what's yours is yours. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 4.29 The old man, the egoic self, never ceases to speak corrupting talk. Corrupting talk does not refer to cussing or dirty jokes. That gets mentioned later. Corrupting talk refers to lashanhara, evil speech, complaining, murmuring, and the malcontent spirit that feels it must air its grievances and share its gripes with listening ears. Paul refers to this as corrupting talk because the sages likened it to leprosy, which corrupts the flesh. This is how the people of the world talk. They love to tear down, to criticize, and complain. They love to speak evil of others, speaking behind people's backs with slander, gossip, and malicious speech. The old man and the egoic self draws energy and vitality for itself from corrupting talk. It tastes delicious to him, like delicious morsels. He sits in the seat of scoffers and loves nothing more than to find a listening ear to vent his dissatisfaction upon. He will tell you everything that's wrong with everything, especially what's wrong with the community, the leadership, and other members of the assembly. That's his thing. But in Messiah, the old man is dead. Take off that identity and put on the new one. The new man speaks only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The new man is constantly looking for the right word of spiritual encouragement to turn the conversation to something constructive, something good, something edifying, as fits the occasion, not looking for every and any opportunity to spill the venom he's been storing up inside but looking for the right moment to speak a word of the Spirit. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30 Corrupting talk grieves the Spirit of God, who is within us and among us. Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as the one by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. To be sealed means to be marked, 
a scroll with a seal bore a clay mark with an insignia belonging to the sender. To be sealed with the Spirit of God means that we bear God's impress upon our being. A seal is intended to keep a scroll closed and its contents concealed until it is delivered into the hands of the recipient. Likewise, the seal of the Spirit is to preserve us until the day of redemption, the future messianic era, when the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Until then, the Spirit is within us and moves among us. But we risk offending the Spirit with our corrupting talk, Lashanhara, and relentless negativity. It reminds me of the mitzvah of the shovel. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy and he must not see anything indecent among you or he will turn away from you. Deuteronomy 23.14 The old man, the egoic self, loves to sit around and have a bitching session, but it grieves the Spirit of God. It's offensive to the Spirit of God as we learn from the stories in the book of Numbers. The children of Israel murmured and complained. God heard it, and he punished them. What is it that grieves the Holy Spirit? It's the words that come out of our mouths. It's how we talk about one another, and how we talk about the community in general. The old man is dead. Put off the old identity and put on the new. How so? Do this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God, in the Messiah, forgave you. Take on my yoke and learn from me. Find rest for your soul